This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. In the programme this week, the government and the media have agreed principles for reporting terrorism. We take a look at those. And as pundits predict just what our economy is going to do in increasingly uncertain circumstances, how much faith should we have in economists getting it right in the media? Just how bad are things going to get? Well, it's not looking quite as severe as those earlier forecasts thought. But first, farmers feel unhappy about the government and unloved by the rest of the country, and they said so in the country's biggest protest for years last week. This week, they've warned they might be back on the streets soon. So how are our media handling the rural-urban divide? The farmers are making a fuss again. Demanding huge handouts from us again. Why, why, why? Tax incentives and subsidies, sheep retention and SMPs. That was the late David MacPhail back in 1982 with his signature impression of the Prime Minister at that time, Robert Muldoon. And there he was complaining about farmers wanting more from his government and not for the first time. However, 40 years on, subsidies, tax relief and supplementary minimum prices are long gone. These days, farmers are unhappy about paying more to the government to cover the cost of environmental policies. So, times change. But in that satirical song, Wine, 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 the late John Gadsby, who was the voice of the grumpy farmer back in 1982, also echoed one theme of last week's rural howl of protest. City people don't understand Problems facing us on the land Forty years on, a rise in the cost of most new utes, part of policies to penalise high emission vehicles and make electric vehicles cheaper, was one catalyst for the groundswell movement's rallies around the country last week. On the day of the protest, the National Party put out a video about that so-called ute tax that looked like a MacPhail and Gadsby skit from days gone by, or possibly even one from Benny Hill. It showed farmers being jabbed hard in the backside by a pointy red arrow marked ute tax with a jaunty ukulele soundtrack in the background. Hard-working Kiwi farmers are being blindsided by unreasonable taxes. Demand the debate. Meanwhile, on RNZ's Morning Report, at the same time, one of Groundswell's founders, Southland farmer Laurie Patterson, said the media seized on the ute tax, but it was only one of many rural issues. And he had a gag of his own ready to go, though not quite MacPhail and Gadsby-style delivery. You know, they only seem to have four sports in New Zealand at the moment. That's rugby, cricket, netball and bashing farmers. In a message to rally his supporters on Facebook, Laurie Patterson reminded them of the importance of creating the right image for the media. We don't want any media attention just because someone does something silly because we all know it will be played on TV over and over. But while Laurie Patterson said he wanted all protesting farmers to be 100% on message, what the main message was at the rallies was confusing. Slogans on vehicles and convoys griped about not just the ute tax and stuff like water reform, but also Māori language and the fact that we have a female Prime Minister from Morinsville. And Laurie Patterson was right about the media seizing on those rogue messages. 
How constructive is it to have Utes honing around with signs like Black Utes Matter and Jacinda is a communist bitch? Yeah, look, I, I, I th personally, I think you know, pers personal attacks are, are not appropriate. I think you'll find a lot of farmers feel that too. Dairy New Zealand boss Tim Mackle on News Hub Nation last weekend. But overall, there was lots and lots of media coverage of what he called the diversity of views. For example, those gathered in a convoy in Te Aumutu were interviewed on Magic Talk's Rural Exchange show and it left any urbanites listening and no doubt just how unhappy they were. New Zealand is not how it should be or how it used to be any longer and uh, we don't like the way it's heading. Also as farmers there's too many restrictions being put on us. I've just had enough. I would say had enough too and, and the unappreciation of farming to New Zealand. And as if to show that the talk radio narrative on this and opposition talking points had cut through in the country, there were comments like this one. Why can they give the mongrel mob 2.7 million and not blink an eye? They don't want to know about us when, it, when we have problems in the South Island like the flooding and that. What did they get down there? Peanuts. They got, they got less than the slide at Parliament. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What a joke. But time and time again, though, it came back to those utes. You can't tell a fifth-wheeler with an EV ute. So we're supporting the absolute stupidity of the tax on utes. In an opinion piece for NZME, Belclutha farmer Shelley Krieger pointed out that the protests had been organised before the so-called ute tax issue exploded. And Groundswell New Zealand already had a list of six other concerns, including freshwater management, the emissions trading scheme and significant natural areas. But none of those got anywhere near as much focus as utes. But while farmers' complaints about costs for all those were pretty easy to find in the media, it was hard to figure out what the costs were, where they might be unreasonable or unfair, and whether they really threatened the profitability or even, as some said, the viability of farming in the foreseeable future. And that's before anyone considered if that change that's coming thick and fast now, along with those costs, is partly because of a lack of action in the past. In the Herald this week, senior writer Simon Wilson made that point and the point that meat prices are high and near-record dairy payouts are coming up. The No Farmers No Food protest slogan, he said, was a good one, but... We also know that it's not fundamentally about our own food. All those sheep in the paddocks, 95% of their meat is destined for export. And that means our food is costing more too. Beef and lamb told RNZ's Farah Hancock this... We are exporters and we're price takers, not price makers in this country. So what I mean by that, if, if a housewife in the middle of Oxford in the UK is prepared to pay a certain price for a cut of meat, we have to match that in, in, in New Zealand. Now, we've seen all this before, where prices paid overseas have made prices surge here in the past, and next Thursday we'll be going there again, when the Commerce Commission releases its draft report into competition in the grocery sector. Stand by for many more headlines on that issue. And urban people will have less sympathy for farmers if they're struggling to buy costlier essential food, let alone a new ute, while farmers get some of the benefits of the higher prices paid here and overseas for food. On the day of the protests, Groundswell co-founder Laurie Patterson denied that the rural-urban divide was getting wider on the NZME rural show The Country, reporting from Gore. People will have said, you know, oh, this is urban versus rural. That's absolutely not right. We've had huge feedback from urban people saying that we agree with what you do, what you're doing, uh, making a stand, and uh, we're with you. What can we do to help? But the urban-rural divide was hotly debated this past week, and not just in the national media. 
Can You Hear Us Now? asks the front page of this week's Farmers Weekly. But inside, editor Brian Gibson blamed a failure of communication and leadership, and not just from the government. Meanwhile, the Gisborne Herald last weekend published in full a fierce speech delivered during the howl of protest by a local councillor, Kerry Worsnop. Almost all of the grievances that we bring here today have their roots in a fancy idea dreamed up in Wellington, which is then rammed down the throat of provincial New Zealand. Her message was, let farmers get on with it, they know what to do better than any bureaucrat. And that echoed a tub-thumping speech at the groundswell protest in Otorohanga, part of the one we heard about earlier in the King Country. Last Tuesday, the 100-year-old local paper, the King Country News, quoted local groundswell organiser Lee Smith as saying, climate change policies were crucifying farmers and... Some of the decision-making is derived from pressure imposed by overseas groups who are unaccountable. The country is ours, not the United Nations. And the King Country News reported that the crowd roared its approval when Lee Smith challenged the media to report honestly and hold our public servants to account. Well, one journalist didn't entirely disagree. In a piece for the spin-off asking how real is the rural-urban divide, Laura Walters said news coverage focused far too much on the ute tax and... Some overly simplified reporting ignored grievances about what farmers believed was a poorly thought-out regulatory work plan and a government that continued to promise engagement without actually listening. In the King Country News this week, editor Heather Carsten wrote this. The divide between urban and rural has grown so wide, you just about need a waka to sail to the other side. The stark front page headline on her paper's front page that day was This is our land, not yours. And that headline was a quote from a groundswell protester complaining about the rules for significant natural areas, which prevent some farmers fully developing or converting some parts of their land. But it was a galling one for Tangata Whenua to read and toned there for anyone else who had an understanding of the history of land confiscation and conflict in that particular region. So does media coverage reinforce that rural-urban divide? A question I put to Heather Carsten, the editor of King Country News. But first I asked her, did the strength of feeling at last week's protests take most of our media by surprise? Absolutely. If, when, when you stop and think about it, we have a lot of you know emphasis on uh, politically what's going to happen in terms of regulation. And let's be quite clear here, this government have perhaps put through more changes in policy and legislation and rules than I think any other government for the last 60 years. And this is the biggest problem that we have, I think, with media across the board, is where we rely a lot on public relations. We're not actually getting out there. The resources are not there. The dailies, the, 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 the you know, TV, they, they don't send people out there to actually see and feel and hear what's going on. So this kind of thing takes them by surprise. They're very much on the back foot, I believe. That front page is quite striking. You know, this is our land, not yours. Um, yeah, did you feel pressure to kind of come down on the side of farmers in the protest? Not at all. I, I think, you know, they've got us through COVID. They've been the backbone of the economy. And I've seen that firsthand, just how hard they worked throughout that time. Did I feel pressure? The answer to that is no, I could see it coming some some time ago. Yeah, it had to happen. While I found there was a common theme in a lot of reporting, people complaining, often there was this phrase, you know, a tsunami of regulations, all this stuff coming at once, and the costs associated with that. But the media, in your mind, let us down in a way, because I found it really hard to find a summary that gave me a clear picture of just what it was farmers were now expected to bear in terms of cost than, that they weren't before. Mm. 
I think the thing is the complexity of it, and it's far-reaching. It's across the board. I mean, if you look at the what we call the SNAs, or significant natural areas, for example, and there are farmers out there who are losing between 60 to 80 percent of their land. They're not allowed to build on it. They're not allowed to do anything with it. They have to fence it at their own cost, and they still have to pay rates on it. But it no longer is their land. I don't think journalists or editors seem to be as aware as they should be of just how complex this is. One of the themes also in that speech by Lee Smith, particularly that your paper reported, was her saying, look, farmers know best. Uh, We don't often need all these regulations. She even urged the government just scrap some of these rules, forget about it. But um, one sort of pushback on that was on News Talk ZB, the broadcaster Jack Tame in his weekend show. He raised the example of Mycoplasma bovis, uh, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, there were farmers, you know, huge levels of non-compliance with the NATE systems when traceability became important. Uh, you know, it was obvious that a lot of farmers just hadn't done that. There was resistance and pushback to the important measures to try and curtail that disease. I mean, if you were a a city dweller looking at this coverage and you hear farmers say, look, leave it to us. We know how to manage the land and animals. You know, that call seems quite irresponsible in a way. I think that, that that's one of those things that you kind of have to look at as a one-off. It was very unexpected, a bit like COVID-19, if you like. They learnt quick what they needed to do and there was no issue with that. So I think there's lots and lots of stuff that's happening up there that city dwellers simply are unaware of and they don't realise just that how ahead of the game farmers really are. And I know in our region, the overarching thing about this is that farmers just simply believe they're not being heard. They're not even being talked to. They're not being approached about it. They're just being told. And it's, I, think, I think it's, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back was the, um, the ute tax. Well, Heather, in your editorial in King Country News, you wrote that the uh, rural-urban divide has now grown so wide you just about need a waka to sail from one side of it to the other. And I wonder, does some of this apply to the media? Um, earlier you mentioned, you know, farmers don't often see a journalist, you know, on the land as, uh, as they might have done in the past. Um, absolutely, I think there is an issue. Most farmers will be quite happy to tell you that uh, they don't see the media um, out here, and I use that term quite loosely because they don't tend to include us. We are entrenched, have been here for 107 years, so they know who we are. But dailies, or you've got television, or you've got radio, you are listening to all that's going on, and you're hearing what is being given to you by the journalist. Um, but you're not actually hearing the reality because they're not here on the ground. They're not seeing, for example, what the Punya River Care are doing or, you know, the Awakino River Care Group are doing or they're not seeing the, the native nurseries that are growing here, which is an iwi-based thing, I think we've got one out of Carthia, who are supplying plants to farmers by the millions. They're not actually seeing the amount of farmers who have got themselves onto committees or councils or how many of them are turning to the lobby groups they do have who seem to be a little bit hamstrung. So do I think journalists um, and editors and you know, media in general need to be much more proactive in the rural regions? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was Heather Carsten, the editor of King Country News, which covered last week's howl of protest in the region in this week's edition with a front page last Tuesday that said, this is our land, not yours. (music) 
Last month here on Media Watch, we looked at Heithenua Torikura, a counter-terrorism hui that was held in Christchurch. It was recommended by the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the March 15 terrorist attacks and organised by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Hefenua Torikura means a land at peace, and the idea of the hui was to discuss ways of preventing similar attacks in future and also combating extremism, which is still on the rise online. And the hui also addressed the roles and responsibilities of our news media. Stuff's boss Sinead Boucher, for example, told the hui that our news media have a social conscience that social media don't, and sometimes they self-censor to help keep people safe. And I can think of several examples over the last, well not several, a handful of examples in the last few years where media have had to um, keep information, um, have had to not publish information um, because of the risk that that could bring to someone's safety. And also among the editors present was Mariana Alexander, the head of premium content at the New Zealand Herald. Now, Mariana Alexander is also the current chair of the Media Freedom Committee, the body which represents the mutual interests of our news media. And she reminded the hui that all mainstream news media also agreed on protocols for reporting the trial of Brenton Tarrant last year to ensure that he couldn't grandstand or promote his beliefs. Now at that time, some free speech and media freedom advocates were a bit alarmed by that, and at the Hefenua Totekura Hui in Christchurch, Mariana Alexander revealed that the Media Freedom Committee had also been meeting with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet with an eye to the future. There's some protocols have been drafted and we're continuing to work together to work through those, but I think, again, I'm not aware of that happening in any other jurisdictions. Again, an illustration of the media's desire to be a responsible member of our community. So that's really encouraging. And, and, and I think that that will just allow ongoing relationships to continue to develop and trust to happen. And, and I think in future, there'll just be various ongoing commitments to those kinds of arrangements as appropriate, which I think is really important. Now, principles for reporting terrorism events and national security emergencies have been agreed by the Media Freedom Committee and the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. The terrorist and national security event media protocols outline what the media, the government and the police are expected to do during such an emergency within New Zealand or even one overseas which involves New Zealanders. The overall goal, the document says, is to make every effort to minimise risks to life and property while also informing the public to the maximum extent possible. The document then lists 16 agreed working principles in which all parties recognise that domestic news media and social media are the most effective communication channels for government and emergency services to convey information to the New Zealand public. And the document also says the public expects open, timely and accurate information alongside responsible reporting by media. Now, for its part, the news media agree in these principles to act responsibly and cooperatively with authorities throughout any given event. So does that then mean surrendering some of their freedom to publish to the authorities during such emergencies or even after? Well, the principles clearly state editorial control will remain with news media editors, with one exception. The Emergency Powers Act of 1987 allows for the preservation of anonymity for operational personnel or equipment and techniques lawfully used to deal with an emergency. So far, so straightforward, but another working principle is this one. It's understood that terrorists or their accomplices may use social media to live stream their actions, monitor media and social media to gain information about tactical responses, and communicate with the media via social media during an ongoing event.
And with that in mind, the media have agreed in these principles to exercise appropriate editorial judgment about publishing any unverified information from such sources, as well as terrorist symbols, signs and propaganda. So, in other words, editors can publish that stuff, but they would have to be able to justify it to the Media Freedom Committee, as well as the authorities, if they do. Now, these working principles also say that the New Zealand media will have a heightened awareness of responsibilities to New Zealand audiences and must recognise that precise language is important in any commentary in order not to frame a specific section of the community as a security risk. The protocols also cover what would happen if a news media organisation is contacted by a terrorist or terrorist organisation. The Media Freedom Committee has agreed that authorities will be notified if that happens, but the government or the police cannot force the media not to publish anything they learn from a terrorist or terror group. However... Any request for withholding the publication or broadcast of such information will be most seriously considered by the relevant editor who will make the final decision. So what about their right to air important information of genuine public interest in such an emergency? Well, working principle number nine says the principles of the Official Information Act apply. So information of interest to the public should be made available via the news media unless there are compelling security or public safety reasons not to do so. Now, the principles add that no unnecessary delays will be imposed on that and that decision-makers will be made available to the media as well. Finally, after any given terrorist event or security emergency, these protocols also oblige authorities and the Media Freedom Committee to review it all and how communication between the various parties could be improved in the future. Now, it's hard to say what difference these protocols will mean if or when there is another act of terrorism here or one that targets New Zealanders somewhere else, but nothing the media did or said on or after March the 15th would have been in breach of these principles, either in the letter of them or the spirit, with the possible exception of two instances of the airing of images from the terrorist live stream, one online for a short time and one on a TV news broadcast. But they will give the media something to point to if authorities in future do overreach by trying to shut down coverage that is responsible and in the public interest. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we mentioned that commentator Rod Oram signed off from doing the weekly slot on business and economics on RNZ's 9 to Noon after several hundred appearances dating all the way back to 2002. And while he still had the chance, he gave listeners this warning about experts in the field. Far too often, people who derive their success and power from business and economics make them sound very complex and hard to understand. Because quite simply, they don't want you to know what's going on to their benefit, which is not necessarily beneficial to you. Oh dear. But the thing is, it really helps to know what the experts think so that we can make plans for the future, and they're in the news all the time. On Friday, for example, one economist's forecast that house prices are peaking aired in RNZ's news like this. Chief economist Kelvin Davidson says moves by major banks to begin raising fixed-term mortgage rates are taking some of the heat out of the market. He says householders should expect to see sales and property values return closer to normality as the market cools. But price falls remain unlikely. But economists aren't always right. Hayden Donnell now looks at whether what they know that we don't makes them any better at working out what's really coming next. House prices are, are going to move down. The extent of that move is going to be proportional to how high the unemployment rate moves up. If we look at what happened during the global financial crisis, your house prices were down 7 to 8%. Yeah, the unemployment rate 
was up to about 6.7%. You know, this this downturn, recession, whatever you want to call it, was looking a hell of a lot worse than what we experienced during the global financial crisis. So as a starting point, you know, I'd pencil on house prices down at least 10%. That's independent economist Cameron Bagri predicting a 10% dip in house prices on RNZ in April 2020. He was far from alone in that projection. The vast majority of our bank economists forecast a declining property market as the COVID crisis deepened last year. We know the rest of the story. Prices rose about 20% in 2020 and kept going up. Here's one news presenter, Chris Chang, introducing a segment on property price figures in June this year. If you were hoping to see a drop in house prices, you're in for some disappointment. Fresh data from the real estate institutes found the median house price nationwide is now $830,000, an increase of more than 30% in 12 months. Economists' unemployment forecast followed a similar trajectory. Here's ANZ Chief Economist Sharon Zollner making her prediction on the country's future joblessness rate to RNZ around budget time in May 2020. Treasury has forecast that by 2025, unemployment will be back to pre-COVID levels. Do you think that's realistic? It's not our forecast, no. So there does seem to be quite a lot of optimism um, that that the labour market will return back to something closer to normal quite quickly, largely perhaps as a result of of the government's efforts in the budget. Uh, We, on the other hand, do see it rate lifting up to 11%, which is not that much higher than the Treasury has it, but then holding up longer because of that need to retrain and move resources around the economy. That's very difficult to do that quickly. And here's Westpac Chief Economist Dominic Stevens the following months with the country in Level 1. Dominic, if I could start with you, you put out some analysis on this. You believe that you know things are bad, but they are perhaps a little better than we thought. Well, the first thing I want to be very clear about, Corin, is that we are still heading for a big recession, and most people's personal experience of it is going to get worse from here. Sure. That is absolutely clear. So the unemployment rate is going to continue rising from here. Business is probably going to get tougher. There are going to be more layoffs, uh, and there's going to be a, a big recession. Again, these predictions were a wee way off target. Unemployment peaked at just over 5% in the September quarter last year and has since dropped to 4.7%. Now economists like Cameron Bagri say the government has to deal with a very different dilemma, how to deal with inflationary pressures caused by too many people having jobs. What we see at the moment across the economy is that the economy is uh, rusting into capacity constraints and that's an environment where inflation is going to be moving up and by any benchmark it looks like we're pretty well at full employment, maximum sustainable employment. Right. Uh, pressure for the Reserve Bank to turn down the heat. You might argue Media Watch is being a little unfair here. COVID was a global cataclysm that precipitated a whole bunch of unpredictable events. Lots of people got things wrong. Except these sorts of misfires are hardly uncommon. Economists have long proven to be bad at predicting recessions. One 2018 study looked at 153 recessions in 63 countries between 1992 and 2014 and found the vast bulk of them came as a surprise to economists. The Queen famously asked why nobody noticed the global financial crisis coming in 2008. At home, the Reserve Bank has repeatedly forecast that interest rates are set to go up over the last decade, only for them to stubbornly keep going down. Since Partners economist Shambil Yaqub has this response to the question of why the media keeps asking people like him for their predictions. I don't know. I don't do that stuff anymore. I, I, I don't do forecasting anymore because I know that I don't know how to forecast. Jakob has some harsh personal experience in this area. He predicted unemployment could rise between 15 and 30% during the early months of the COVID crisis. He says the media needs to get better at recognising economists' limitations. 
so they've, they've done this work, right? And there's lots of really good, uh, quite fun literature out there that shows that a random number generator is not that far off economist forecasts. There are two types of economists, right? The most visible bank economist types, who are the ones who make all these grand predictions and they're inevitably wrong. And then there are the other 99% of economists who do work on thinking about policy and those kinds of things. And I'd say on that side of things, they're probably far more useful because they kind of contend with uncertainty and go, here is a big problem. Here are some different ways of thinking about it. And here is an on-balance approach of how we might deal with it. That's quite a different job. And I think the problem is a lot of economics is seen through the lens of bank economists, which is, I think, a very stunted and limiting lens. Should we stop asking economists what's going to happen? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you guys give them um, lots of lots of headline and column space to talk about what's going to happen. You know, it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing. But there is no accountability to the forecasts that are made. Essentially, you've, we've got the data that shows when we, you know, the things that you ask us to talk about, house prices, interest rates, exchange rate, the economy, more often than not, you'll find that we get the direction, the magnitude, and the timing wrong. Right. So not just wrong, but actually almost the opposite of what actually is going to happen. Yeah. Well, if you look at the Reserve Bank's forecast for interest rates going back for the last 10 years, it's always increasing, right? But the, the reality has been the opposite. So here is a bank, a whole building full of economists, and their main job is to predict what interest rates are going to do, and they've been getting it wrong for most of the time. Economics is hard. Um, forecasting is impossible. Economic journalist Bernard Hickey has also been burned by the forecasting game. In 2008, he predicted Auckland house prices were about to drop 30%. Auckland's median house price has risen about 117% since then. He says we media organisations could do with sounding a note of caution before allowing economists to deliver their on-air prognostications. Part of the problem with covering economics and economics forecasts is that we always forget how wrong people were in the past. We're very focused on the right now. And I always like to put some context and perspective into these things now that I'm lucky enough to have it, having covered... Yeah, should we have a batting average, basically, with these economists? You know, like you, Bernard was off by an order of magnitude in 2008. Take that into account. You know, Cameron Bagri got house prices wrong last year. So did just about every bank economist. Should they have their batting average next to them when they do these forecasts? And and we should ask Kane Williamson for his views on it. Exactly. Uh, um, So you're right, we should be a lot more cautious uh, about that. But um, when you do look at the the very long run, economists, I wouldn't say they're as good as weather forecasters or climate forecasters, but there is an element of climate, the difference between climate and weather here. Uh, You can get the weather forecast wrong tomorrow, but you can be right about your climate forecast in the long run. Unfortunately, economists have been quite wrong about large parts of the climate as well as well as the weather. But on the whole, um, you know, those relationships between inflation and growth and interest rates and asset prices are still there. These forecasts can have consequences though, right? They can influence markets, they can influence just individual investors' decisions. Should the media add caveats before they have these economists on and disclaimers to say these might not be accurate? Yeah, that would make um, a fun look for a newspaper or a, or a website to have um, a bunch of footnotes and asterisks on headlines. And I'm not being a little bit facetious here. I think that's not a bad idea, actually. 
Uh, it's just a matter of how you um, phrase it and um, do your toning. But certainly we should be more cautious about taking these things as gospel. We have a situation now where every economist and his or her dog is predicting that inflation is going to go up markedly and interest rates are going to go up. Should we be a bit more cautious about those forecasts as well? Should they be put in context of the fact that basically our predictions on inflation have been out for a decade? That's right. Um, When you look at uh, the forecasts from Treasury and the Reserve Bank over the last decade, um, they've consistently forecast higher inflation and higher interest rates and they've been wrong every time. Um, I know this is radio, but um, the best way to describe it is a a chart which shows lots of grey lines shooting off into the atmosphere and the actual inflation and interest rates remaining very low, uh, below all those uh, forecasts. So um, that's something for people to remember. And that's been important for people because a lot of people have fixed the long terms on those predictions. And then when it hadn't turned out right, then they've had to break those fixed uh, long-term fixed mortgages, and that's been quite expensive. So um, there are consequences. Now, it's possible to eke out some sympathy for these economists. The economy is vast, complicated and confusing, and as a result, easy to be wrong about. But their predictions, often made with unwarranted, unshakable confidence, have real impacts on people's financial futures. Given the amount they're wrong, it's worth adding a disclaimer before printing or broadcasting these opinions. This could be right, but definitely don't bet your house on it. Hayden Donnell there, wondering whether we should be a bit more economical with our faith in economists predicting what will happen next in the media. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show for Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.